Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. This week, we welcome Jen Brister to The Pleasure Podcast. She's a critically acclaimed stand-up comedian, actor, and now author. She's regularly been on our radios, toured six solo shows around the world, and graced our screens at Live at the Apollo, Live at the Comedy Store, and Frankie Boyle's New World Order. Later this year, she'll be in the Sarah Pascoe series, Comedy Lectures, and Hypothetical. And she'll be touring her hilarious show, Under Privilege, around the UK in 2020. We speak to Jen about her first book, The Other Mother, an honest, funny memoir in which she describes her experience of being a gay, non-biological other mother to her twin boys. Jen is one of my favourite comedians, and she makes us laugh a lot, whilst tackling issues that are pertinent to everyone. When you're young, you just think, oh, right, these certain things just happen. They just happen, don't they? So you will just meet someone and fall in love and you will just maybe get married or you will just have children or something. Particularly when I was growing up in the 80s, no one was offering any alternatives. You know, at school or even at home, my mum would always say, when you're married, when you get married. And I was like, oh, God, this just sounds horrific. And I remember being about 13 and saying to my mum, I am never getting married. And my mum was like, you will. You will fall in love and you'll get married. And I was like, no. And I felt really clear about that because I kind of thought, if I have to be with a boy... That just sounded like the worst possible situation I could ever find myself in. But I kind of always knew that I would like to have a baby or children. And that's such a weird thing to know from quite a young age. But I knew I didn't really want to be with anyone. Just thought it would be quite nice to have a baby or a child and just to be on my own with them. And then when I got into my sort of early 20s, I would have these really vivid dreams about babies. I was obviously my body going, get pregnant, get pregnant, get pregnant. And then by the time I got to my 30s, you know, that realisation that, see, as a lesbian, you're not just going to get pregnant and it is going to be very expensive. And I was skint. So I was like, well, it's not going to happen for me. And then I just thought, well, maybe when I get to my 40s, maybe I'll adopt. And I kind of just kept thinking of it that way. And I didn't really care if it was pregnancy or if it was adoption. I, I just thought I really want to have a kid. So it just felt like it would happen. So, yeah, I've always had that. And, I, and I've spoken to a lot of my friends who've like, oh, God, no, never, ever, ever felt like I wanted to have kids. Because there, there is a sort of an assumption, isn't there, that all women want children. Yeah. Or all men aren't bothered about having children. And, of course, we know that's not true now, but, uh, yeah. But it's also interesting that you're not describing necessarily the physical urge of having a child. It sounds like more that it was the emotional, like, I want a thing to care for and love, yeah. as opposed to I want to have a baby coming oh, yeah. out for, for my body, which I think I used to have a very physical want 
to give birth. <laughs> and that went away and changed into something else. Can I just check, you actually physically wanted to pass a baby out of your body? Um, I felt it like in my, in, in my breasts and my belly. I felt like I wanted to... No, I don't think that passed me by. I think in my 20s, I definitely, yeah, felt a very similar thing. Like, I would have, like, these very vivid dreams and fantasies about being pregnant. And then in my mind, I was like... I just, but then the actual idea of being pregnant in my mid-twenties was like, oh God, I don't, I, don't, I don't actually want to be pregnant. But it was a very primal thing when my body was going, this is a good time for you. It's get hormones, isn't it? Yeah, get pregnant and now. you could physically or emotionally feel that. Yeah, I think so, definitely. That's just, I think that's just, yeah, that's your body saying, look, you're ready for this. That brief period where I was fantasizing about having a baby, I was also having a lot of fantasies about having sex with men. And often sort of faceless men, these men, I don't know them, they're just men. And they're being quite a, a strong sexual attraction. And in my head, I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's quite normal for me to want to have, you know, for a woman, I think sometimes, you know, an erect penis, you're like, yeah, I'll hop on that, that's fine. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, the hell, hang on, let's just want to back up. No, not back up on that, that sounds like a long way. <laughs> back up there, back up there slightly. Just that, so, it's interesting for me, because I have not, ever wanted to sleep with a woman. I've had no physical interest to have any sort of penetrative act with a woman. Snogging, I think actually yes, because that seems more an emotional connection rather than necessarily a physical one. But actually I don't want to put my, my dick in a lady. But how about, but you seem to have said that actually there is that sort of sense for you. Yeah, and I would say the opposite. Don't want to snog a bloke. Don't want any emotional connection with a man at all. But yeah, I'll hop on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I don't think that's unusual. I think for lesbians who might have been in the closet and have had quite a lot of sex with men, you know, and people say afterwards, well, then you must fancy men or you must be into men. It's like, no, particularly when you're young and in your 20s and your libido is quite high. It's not out of the realms of possibility that you'd be like, yeah, I could do that if I was deep in the closet. I mean, it's not the preference. And get off on it because I know what to do to get off on that, you know, if we're directing it in the right way, that sort of thing. But for me, I've never, and I've have slept with a couple of men, but when they try to kiss me, I'd be like, get a yuck off. I don't want to have any kind of intimacy with you. And then also that that would always be quite, and now I realise with hindsight, probably quite unkind. We'd be like, right, I'm done, bye, and then walk off. And they'd be like, what is, where are you going? Uh, it's because I'm like, I just, I don't know what to do with you anymore. I've, I've actually had an orgasm. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I think that's quite, I don't, I think that might be the difference between lesbians and gay men. A lot of my sort of friends, gay friends, have had relationships with women, particularly when they were younger, when they weren't out of, uh, out of the closet, you say, or well, they haven't actually, they haven't quite realised their sexuality in lots of ways. But certainly there's lots of people I know who um, actually are very attracted to people, not necessarily men or women. They like certain personalities, they like um, certain, uh, certain you know, faces, certain body types, um, certain smiles, or whatever it is that you turn to you on. I like your face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, but I think it's... Um, Weird. I think there is a face type that I think I quite am attracted to. Yeah. I, no, I, I think that's really interesting. The whole sexuality thing, I suppose, I still find myself saying things in quite a binary way. Like I just said just then, it's all very binary. Oh, lesbians do this and gay men do this, which is absolutely, it's a load of bollocks. <laughs> And I think that's because I've just been conditioned as a young child to think in a binary way. And I think a lot of people in my generation are. So, like, the whole idea of pansexuals, um, if you speak to a lot of my friends, who I, they think they're really woke. They, they, but you mention pansexual, they're like, oh, for fuck's sake, mate, <laughs> come on, you're bisexual, pick a team or whatever, you know, like... But actually, what you're saying is completely correct, that if you are pansexual, it's, it's, it's not like bisexual at all. It's something completely different. And it is about being attracted to 
people to a, a certain there's something that you might not even be able to articulate that there is something about that person that you are drawn to and it, it, irrespective of whether they are trans or whether they are cisgender or whether they are a man or you know a woman or whatever that's it you're like oh god I'm, I'm into you whereas bisexual is something completely different you know you're attracted to two genders rather than and I find that refreshing that that is something that people are expressing or talking about more because when I was growing up I would have loved to have known about people that were like that are like that. It feels like there's an evolution of language that started to happen which is uh, enabling people to be able to actually express their identity and their sexuality in a way that feels like it had been more binary before. Yeah and I think that's a really positive thing. You talk in the book actually about Chloe being bisexual. She's quite unusual really like she's never sort of come out as bisexual. I would say that she probably doesn't really even identify as bisexual. I think that's something that is a term that has been thrust upon her because prior to being with me she'd always had relationships with men. You know, I probably Chloe's probably a bit more pansexual honestly. I think if you were to really delve into it, but I just don't think she's bothered. Certainly when we got together it was very confusing. She was like, "I have always been with men and now I have this very strong attraction to you and now I think I've fallen in love with you and now that's made me feel Feel quite because I envisaged my life with a man and then getting married and having children and now what am I going to do with you you know <laughs> yeah sort of thing so and also the added issue of telling her family I think might have been difficult but I think her family who probably did struggle with it at the beginning never made me they never invited me into that struggle they, they kind of had it at home where they were like this is different um, but they've got their heads around it now. When I was growing up, it was, you know, on TV you had Kenny Everett. And how did people not realise he was gay? How did people not realise or think that George Michael might be gay? Oh, my example? God. I, I, I don't know. And, and, I, and I look at back at it now and I'm watching him with, you know, in a dress with the very long legs. And, and I'm going... It's all done with the best parts. Parts of the And you're going... How is it that we have been either so conditioned or we were so naive or whatever it was we were that we you know, so blinkered that we didn't actually think this could be a gay man? Not that it'd be a bad thing or a good thing, just going actually he could have a you know, different sexuality to the norm or, and he is acting this out in full view. I think there's a tradition of camp in our entertainment. So camp men, they were just funny. You know, that was part of their act rather than a sign of their sexuality. So you could get Kenny Everett or uh, Kenneth Williams or, uh, oh my God, Liberace I was just for crying out that. loud. Mm. Um, even someone like uh, Barry Manilow, who came out not that long ago, and everyone went, "Can you believe Barry Manilow?" Lowe's get-? I'm like, "Are you are you out of your at the Copacabana?" At really? the Copacabana. <laughs> Have you? Anyway, listen, I don't even want to talk about it, but clearly he's gay, and I think people see what they want to see. And also these men never came out. I think when I was growing up, I knew Kenny Everett was gay, though. I think I'm pretty sure I did. I think so. But somebody like Kenneth Williams and even Frankie Howard, I remember thinking, these guys look very camp. They must be gay. And But then if you said it, people were like, oh, no, he's not gay, he's just camp. And you're like, oh, OK, that's... When you're a kid, you don't care either way. It doesn't matter. So I think it's a mixture of that, a very, very deep closet in terms of your job and also that sort of camp kind of tradition that we have in this country. 
but so few alternatives the other way around. Where were the lesbians hidden away in the entertainment industry? Yeah, but the lesbians are hiding even now, I think. There's not much lesbian visibility, I don't think, at all, really. And, and what we have feels like a real, like, box-ticking exercise, literally. I still think lesbian visibility is something that needs to be discussed, because, I mean, I talk about it very briefly in my show, but the, in the LGBT uh, acronym, it's the G gets the most focus. If you've ever been in a, a lesbian relationship and you've been out with your partner and you display any affection in public, in a bar or on the street or whatever, then you can expect to hear crap held at you, whether it be from a car or whether it be from a bloke in a bar coming up and telling you that he'd like to come around and watch. You know, that that's not unusual. And I've been in a bar with my girlfriend and had a man come up to me and grab my face and say, right, no, this is how you do it, and snog me stuck his tongue in my mouth. So, you know, that, that's not uncommon. When those two young women were uh, very violently assaulted on a bus because they wouldn't kiss for this... These, act out the fantasy. Yeah, they wouldn't act the, out yeah. this fantasy for these group of men. Then you can see what the repercussions can be for lesbians. I saw that tweet from Susie Ruffle, actually, saying that her and her partner were going out for an anniversary meal at the, at the Ritz. Ritz. And she just went, you know what... <laughs> Let's not do it here. It doesn't feel like the right place to have a kiss. Yeah, well, there are lots of places which I think if you're in a gay relationship, there are places that you know you can and there are places you know either doesn't feel safe or you know that it's going to cause problems for you. I'm not really worried about other people feeling uncomfortable as long as it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. And if I'm in a situation where it's going to make me or my partner feel unsafe or uncomfortable, then I'm like, this is not worth it. And has that changed with kids in any way? I think when we're out... To, as a couple with our children, people are confused about the dynamic. So a lot of the time they're just trying to figure out what's what. And then when they do, I think most people don't give a shit. Do you think that's because you're more in Brighton, for example? I used to live in Brighton as well. I found it very much, most people just let anything happen. When we're at Brighton, I don't even think about it. But we went to the Isle of Wight recently for a weekend and there I could just feel it. I just felt people staring and not knowing. And not necessarily in a... I didn't feel it, like intimidated. It was more that they were just like... Is going on over there? Especially, God, Isle of Wight is awash with pensioners. And I think a lot of them were like, what is happening? You know, and it's, it's just curiosity, I think. And maybe there's some judgment there, but if there is, I don't give a fuck. But I think it's, we've chosen to live in a ghetto, really, for a reason. And I don't have any problem with that. I feel like that was the right decision for us. So you and Chloe decided to have a baby and you approached that through IVF. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? It's very intrusive and it's very stressful. And I think for the woman going through it, there's a lot of pressure on you to deliver. It's almost like a performance. How well have your eggs performed, mm. you know? Yeah. And extremely expensive. Yeah, That really, really struck me in the book, actually, as to how much of a money-making system this is. Yeah, it's real money spinner. And that's why you've got to be really careful with the clinic you choose so that you feel like even if you are unsuccessful, that the clinic have done everything they can to support you in that process. Because certainly the first clinic we went to, we were like, oh, you guys are cowboys. You've just literally taken our money and fucked off. You need to feel like there's something resembling a partnership there where they are as invested as you in getting pregnant. Because every time you don't get pregnant, they need to do a test. And that test costs however much it costs, five, six hundred quid. And then you don't even know if that test will work. And then they go, well, we could try another test. And you're like, Jesus Christ. So basically, it's a little bit like going to a casino and chucking a load of money 
and seeing if you get anything back because it, it's not, I really, really don't think it's an exact science. I wanted to just ask you about how you approached um, the fertility conversation. So in terms of, so the two of you have decided actually we would like to have a child together. What did you do? Well, it was a really, it was a no-brainer. I was 37 and unbeknownst to me, I was about two years away from being perimenopausal. So actually, I mean, I, I'll never know because I never had a fertility test, but I mean, I'm guessing that it would have been maybe not impossible, but pretty tricky for me to get pregnant. I just felt like my body was like, no, I don't, my I just didn't want it. And my body didn't want it. And so Chloe was really excited about being pregnant like really excited about it like it was like a, a really primal urge for her and I, so it was a no-brainer and we're really fortunate that it was because I think for some lesbian couples it can be a tricky conversation to have as to who is going to get pregnant first or who will you know some people do that thing where they go I'll use your egg and then I'll carry your baby yeah so that's the thing so we've got a couple of friends who've done that one of them's gone through the IVF and then the other one takes that egg and then has that implanted in her womb. I thought that if Chloe was going to be the one to get pregnant, she should at least have her own baby. <laughs> <laughs> that felt fair. Yeah. So, <laughs> I was like, I just don't really see how it's going to happen. That I'll do that and then you carry it. I was, I was like... trying to imagine that. I was trying to sort of put myself in that position if I was to give somebody my, my partner my egg and then it's growing... It, it would would it feel any different and and, it, and it, this is something that I think is explored really well and really viscerally in, in your book which is really putting biology on a plinth society really going it's all about biology and then us sort of working out hold on it shouldn't be the primary concern no and I think that's because of these primal urges that you have whether it be as a man or as a woman selfish to, to... gene or whatever it might be but I mean it's a necessary selfishness in order to keep this whole sort of uh, you know to keep, going. To keep this whole circus going yeah exactly someone's got to pay for our pensions yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly I've got a feeling it's not going to be my children um, <laughs> but I, I do think that when we talk about families and also because of the government that we had for quite a long time it's such you know the conservative government you know is conservative for a reason and that's because they are well they all often are giving tax breaks to heterosexual couples to get married to have children for a long time if you're gay you couldn't get married i mean it's not that long since we were given that privilege it wasn't that long ago that um if chloe had got pregnant i wouldn't have been included on the the birth certificate as the other parent I would have had to go through adoption it wasn't that long ago that gay well, couples weren't allowed to adopt change? so I think it was about a year before we started the process so I, I was very lucky so the, all of these things are, are all very recent these um these changes in the law that, that have created something resembling equality for gay couples who want kids so if you're a heterosexual couple and you decide you want to potentially try for a baby just go upstairs yeah. And you have sex on the sofa. I mean, you know, it is a relatively simple thing to start the process of. But if you're not, you have to make multiple decisions. And those decisions are deeply unsexy decisions. They are decisions about, you know, which clinic am I going to choose? Whose egg are we going to harvest? What sperm are we going to use? And one of the things that I really was interested in was how you chose your sperm. Mm. We actually spent, I don't know, maybe months, weeks, I don't know. It felt like a long time going through sperm. I mean, not literally. <laughs> oh. um, going through uh, the sperm bank. 
In fact, we went through several sperm banks trying to pick the right donor. You were given a sort of little pricey summary, a little CV of, of the sperm, aren't you? Yeah, so but you, depending on the clinic, you get a different amount of information. And in the end, we went with the European Sperm Bank because you get the most information on your donor. And I mean, there are thousands of donors all over the world. I mean, it's called the European Sperm Bank, I think, because it's based in Denmark, but our sperm actually came from the United States, from a young guy that lives in Seattle. I don't know how we, we chose him, really. It was partly to do with the physical health of their parents as well. That was really important because you can see if there's any illnesses or any sort of... And do they have to disclose that? They have to disclose it. So if there's any kind of genetic things that you, could, that you might need to consider if you're using the donor sperm, like Alzheimer's and cancer being the main ones. But obviously uh, there are loads of other things. So you're, you're, not, so you're not 100% safe, but you're like, say, 80%. There's stuff that you can't possibly know that won't come up in the screening. So then you have to think about other things. So we looked at dementia and we looked at cancer as two of the things, and that actually took out quite a lot of people. Oh, really? So these are the kind of neurotic things you talk about, and that's why you can sort of find yourself in a kind of a little bit of a wormhole. It got to the point where we had, like, I think half a dozen donors, and then we just sort of almost went him, because we were like, oh, God, we've just got to pick somebody. Yeah. And... There was a while that you described where you're kind of going... Mm, I can't let him to be um, playing oh, the guitar. Oh, God, we did all of that. And then, oh, if he could Just be a little bit creative. olive skinned and if he could be like this and then... Yeah. So that it felt somehow that he that the donor represented both you and Chloe. Yeah, somewhere. I want him to have a really high IQ. I'd love it if he was musical. You know, we were like doing all of these things. Yeah. We just couldn't find this guy. You're no. like a clapping parent, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> Such wankers. So literally, we chose this guy on the basis of something that the nurses said about him being really hot. I love this so much. <laughs> there were like three different comments for three different of the nurses and they were all like, he's really friendly, he's really nice and he's so beautiful. And then there was one thing from one of the nurses who went, he is literally the most gorgeous guy. We always look forward to seeing him when he comes in. And her and I were like, look, this guy is hot, okay? <laughs> so let's go for him. And also the other thing was very few people had chosen him as a sperm donor at that point. So we were like, yeah, okay. I wonder why. I think he hadn't been on there for long. Okay. And also because there are, there are other things like he's quite short. <laughs> <laughs> but he'll definitely do. Oh, his picture of him, you get a picture of him when he was a baby. And the picture of him as a baby was the cutest picture. There was a couple of guys, I was like, oh, he sounds really interesting. He's really clever. He's a doctor. He's got a PhD. Let's do him. And then you look at the baby photo and go, oh, God. <laughs> No, I'm not him. <laughs> but we all, like, like, baby photos so unrepresentative yeah. how beautiful baby someone's going to be. Gonna be. Gonna be. You know, what a person's going to look like. No, I was bald until I was that chick. I mean, <laughs> baby photos of me, you'd be like, oh, you know, yeah. of course. There's literally no rational way of choosing your donor. And if you think you're doing it rationally, you're not. You're not. You'll look back and go, what? But ultimately, you're going to have to pick something or someone, and whoever it is, it doesn't matter, because when your baby's born, they're your baby. You don't care. So, obviously, you have this uh, young man in Seattle. So, what are the legalities around uh, knowing your parent, you know, knowing where the sperm came from? So, you, as a donor, can opt in or opt out of that. And we specifically chose a donor who had opted in. There were certain people that were like, oh, we like him, but he's opted out. And so, we wanted to give our children the option that if they ever wanted to contact him, that he was open to being contacted. And in terms of how many half-siblings my children might have, that's something that we probably should find out. Something to take into consideration is in the States you get paid for your sperm and in Europe you don't. So I don't know, at the time, either there was like only one other family that he'd 
using sperm or there was nobody. There was only us. We, we know that that's unlikely to, to stay that way, but it was so quite can nice. can you find out later you on? You can. You can contact the sperm bank and say, well, first of all, you have to notify the sperm bank that you have two children from that donor. So they need to know that so that they can keep an eye on how many children are being born of this donor. Because then obviously after a point they put a cap on it and I think it's something like, I've completely blanked there. I didn't know it. But let's say it's something like four different families and each family can have four children or five children. Okay, I really had no idea what number was going to come out of your mouth then. You could have been like 600 children. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think think it's it's like a dozen or something. Okay, so then it's a really slim chance of people bumping into each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like bumping into, you mean having like two children, which then get together. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked yeah. about that. We talked about that, and um, they do talk to you about that in the clinic as well. You know that there is this thing where people who are related to one another but don't know they're related to other, that attraction can be quite strong if they meet. You know, it can be quite a strong attraction because it's sort of I don't know. It's a mixture of pheromonal apparently due to the major histocompatibility complex. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> So basically, on the, on the outside of cells, there are these blocks of, um, uh, of molecules that detect, basically, uh, your immunity. And so they detect abnormal parts of cells, they detect bacteria, viruses, etc. So you are able to detect someone else's compatibility to you. And apparently that's transmitted through pheromones, from what I've read. Um, and so that means that often when you see people that have you know, got off with or married someone that looks like their dad, and you're thinking, why on earth have you got together someone that looks identical to your parent? It's because visually or um, genetically, you can detect that actually they are likely to make compatible genes with you. And so you would right. have a healthy, immunologically competent child. But th- that, that goes against the idea of then, it, if it's incest, surely it works against that. This is why, because uh, I've read one side of it, but also you're quite right, the other side is if you have, you know, people marrying their sisters, you're going to end up Very with all the people. genetic um, uh, abnormalities that coming together mm. and being grouped together. So I, I don't quite know how all of it works, but it does seem, there does seem to be a real drawing together of people who are actually genuinely And I wonder if it's a tribal thing as well, because whenever I meet people who have my father's specific sort of eyes, whenever I, and that side of the family whenever I see people with those eyes I feel and actually you have them and that's <laughs> I feel like yeah when you take lessons you, you got, got them you've got them as well yeah there you go I get I've I get herbivore like, eyes they're quite far apart I, rather than predator eyes where they're in the but, center but when, I, but when I see those sorts of eyes I get a, <laughs> I get a warm fuzzy feeling and I feel sort of like oh my tribe you know? oh, and I delicious. wonder whether there's a thing there as well. About... I think there probably is. I think it's. I think it's like you said. I think it's a primal thing. And um, I mean, there must be some science behind it. Otherwise, I don't know. They probably wouldn't bring it up in a clinic, would they? If there wasn't. But I mean, I, you know, you have to hope that it's <laughs> that it's not going to happen. <laughs> Basically, we buried that thought, and yes. we've never talked about it. <laughs> so sorry to have <laughs> You are the person supporting your person that you love and you're supporting them getting pregnant and you either can't get pregnant or you don't want to get pregnant and you can't help them to get pregnant. I suppose you can feel like a bit of like a chocolate teapot really. You're not able to do the thing that you know will be the the one thing that will make your partner happy. So how Um, did you deal with it? Basically we we talked about it a lot and I just said to Chloe you know Whatever happens, if we want children, we can always adopt. And, and Chloe is a very pragmatic woman, and she was like, nope, you're absolutely right, we can. We were never going to go through another round of IVF because we didn't have the money. So we were quite resigned to the fact that we might not get pregnant. And for a long time, we did feel like it wasn't going to happen. 
But I think from what I've heard and from certainly from being at the clinic, I can see that that isn't an option for a lot of women, that, that, that they are just going to keep going until they get pregnant or until they have a breakdown. There is a sadness in going to these clinics. You do see a lot of people, couples that are fraught, that, that look like they're at the end of their tether, women that are breaking down in corridors because they didn't get pregnant again. It's not. I don't find these clinics necessarily happy places to visit because, and when you sit in a waiting room, it is really tense because you know that you're just in a waiting room full of people who want a child and they haven't got a child. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's not fun. No. I just made me think that everyone involved should be in therapy. They do offer counselling at the beginning, but it's, it's like you literally get two sessions and the two sessions are half an hour each. And it does really feel like an inconvenience because you, you can't start IVF until you go through these. So a lot of people are like, yep, 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 yep. Everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, but so you can just start the treatment as opposed to having that during the treatment, which would have probably more beneficial, definitely. I think it's more of a litigious thing. It's like, we've covered everything before you started. We made sure that you had a counsellor. So don't come suing us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If the process had been a lot longer, I think we would have come into trouble. But it didn't... I never felt like our relationship was scarred by it or scorched by it, while, even whilst we were going through it. And I think that's partly because we kept taking the pressure off ourselves. We just kept talking about it and kept going, look, we love each other. We have a really nice life. We've got all these things that we love, and if we had children, that would be amazing. But if we didn't, think of all the great things that we can still do. Yes. I think if you are using a child to patch up a relationship that isn't working, firstly, you never do that, because I can tell you something they don't do, help. <laughs> but, I mean, like, the amount of people I know that have had a kid, then broken up because they thought the kid would bring them together, it's like a child will never bring you together. It will, it will test your relationship to the max. So you better be strong from the get-go if you want to survive it. But you, did, you, you got pregnant. We did get So, yeah, we got pregnant. And then from then, it was just... It was all gravy after that. I say it's all gravy after that because, obviously, a lot of women miscarry. But um, it was all gravy for us. We were fortunate. We found out we were having twins, which was madness. And then we did have a huge neurosis that one of the babies would just not make it. I think that came from one of the doctors who said, you know, if you have twins, because they really don't want you to have twins, first and foremost. Why is that? Because it's a complicated birth. Yes. And they don't want to have complicated births. You know, they, multiple births they don't like. And I think actually I've just discovered, like, we, we got twins because we stuck two embryos in. Um, and I don't think you're, you can do that anymore. Oh. Yeah, I think that's done now. So it's only one in. Because IVF stories often end in multiple children, don't they? Well, it used to be that you could stick as many in as you wanted. It was absolutely madness. And then you'd get these octuplets or something. <laughs> yeah. So it used to be that you could stick like 16 bloody embryos in or something. But the maximum you could stick in when we did it, nearly six years ago now, was two. And that they didn't want you to do. They were very clear. They were like, if you stick two in, you will get twins. So do you want twins? And I was like, no. And they were like, do not stick two in then. And Chloe was like, I want to stick two in because I've got a feeling one of them isn't going to stick and then the other one will and then we'll have a baby. And I was like, okay. And then she was, you know, very frugal. We'll save ourselves some money. <laughs> Let's just get two done at once. And then we had twins. So, yeah. The whole way through the pregnancy, I was like, you look so beautiful. I thought she looked fantastic the whole way through. And also, I don't, I don't want to 
be disgusting. But I was always very attracted to her the whole way through the pregnancy. Pregnancy really suited her and she was she she enjoyed it. Talking about being attracted to your partner when they're pregnant, there's quite a taboo thing about that that was explored really nicely in Penny Skinner's play, The Village Bike, about women who are pregnant wanting to have sex still and people treating them like they're some sort of angel that mustn't be besmulched. Is that a word? I'm, I'm going to coin besmulched. Um, <laughs> Through, through sex when they're holding such precious cargo and uh and this yeah, especially for penetrative sex i think there's a feeling with sometimes with I, i've heard that men think like they don't want to stick their dick up in case they you know it's the tr- baby's head well because there's <laughs> a baby up there somewhere but anyway the biology of it is you can relax fellas your dick's not that big um <laughs> and i also i think women having a libido in the particularly in the third trimester, which I think is very common. I think a woman's libido goes up for whatever reason. I I think that's true. Having sex with a woman that is that pregnant, I imagine, you know, well, I don't imagine, I know. is I suppose it is a little weird, but it's not really because it's, you you know, you're also, it's a really nice time before the baby is born. The first baby, it's really romantic and it's quite special and it feels like you're really connecting and you're really really bonding over this seismic event that you still have no idea what it's going to be. It's like... It's like the day before Christmas for a long time, you know, when you're like, you're imagining your family and... So you do, you really reconnect as a couple after all that very stressful time of trying to get pregnant. Past 20 weeks, I imagine it almost feels like you're in a safer space. I appreciate, you know, things happen, but, you know, that 20 to 40 week space must be a much more warm, comfortable place. Yeah, and you start nesting and you're imagining and and maybe you're buying bits and bobs for the baby or you're thinking about what bits and bobs you're going to buy and you've got all these baby books that you're trying to find out about all the things that you've got to do and all this crap, you know, you totally romanticise the whole thing of parenting. Did you do NCT? We did do NCT, yeah, yeah. And and that's another whole shebang. It was interesting in the book you describe it and feeling like you were kind of like plonked with the fellas. I was the only non-dad but partner. So, yeah, I was stuck in with all the dads. Who And it was interesting because they make you do this thing where you have to change a baby's nappy. Well, I've changed loads of nappies before my children were born. And I just remember being with this grown man and him being given a nappy and he had no idea what to do with it. And I just thought, oh my fucking God, how can you be a man in your uh, late 30s and you don't know how to put a nappy on? I really feel like that's about socialisation and friendship groups. So my my friends have all had babies, they're immediately like, here, have the baby while I go and have a shower or a shit or whatever it is. Yeah. And then you're looking after the, and you're looking <laughs> yeah. after the baby. Yeah. And But you just immediately like, this is my role, I'm going to support and look after my friend by looking after their baby. baby, Whereas my husband definitely feels like, can't touch your baby because this is the most precious thing in your life and I don't want to hurt the precious thing because I don't think there's such a, well, certainly not in his life, but such a history of men just looking after each other, caring for each other's babies in a social environment. Yeah. And so I I certainly think he hasn't changed an an nappy. I don't think I've properly changed it. I mean, I've I've changed them when kids are there and I'm I'm examining them for their six-week check and stuff. And I I know exactly how a nappy fits together, etc. But I don't have to change it because the mum's there and the dad's there or whoever's there. They they sort the baby out. But I definitely recognise what you're saying about, you know, I do not change. I sit with the husband and I have a pint. Well, actually, yeah. I have a glass of white wine, but you know, off his, <laughs> he has a pint. <laughs> but which really makes me think of that anecdote, actually, that story of when you went to the wedding and the, and the partner says, don't worry, it never changes 
having a baby will not change your life. And yeah. like, okay, great. And then you look at the mum and... Oh, yeah. I just remember looking at his wife going, oh, I don't think she's having your experience, mate. Like, literally, literally a day in to my children being born, I was like, how can this not be anything other than seismic change? How, because there's, no, there's nothing to do but for this baby. How are you not seeing that? Or for your partner? And maybe it's because we had twins, but and and Chloe had to have a C-section, so she couldn't move, you know, as well. But it was like my entire role is to look after Chloe, so that she can look after our children. So I'm changing the nappies, and I'm picking them up in the middle of the night, and I'm put, placing them on Chloe's breast, so she can breastfeed them, and I'm not giving any sleep, and, that, and I'm cooking for dinner for Chloe so that she can eat, and I'm doing the housework. That's I've, it's really clear what my role is here. So when I look back at him going, oh, your life doesn't change, I'm like, what the fuck were you doing? Seriously, mate. And also your wife looks completely shattered. The whole way through that wedding, I remember being with Chloe going, oh my God, she looks so tired. Do you think we should ask if we can help with the baby or we can take the baby so she can have a life? And we did that. We went, should we take her so you can have a nap? But I, I don't know if that's the dynamic between two women or if that is just because he's an inconsiderate twat. Yeah, Might sure. be a bit of both. I was interested that you've titled it The Other Mother, because the, the way you describe caring for Chloe and caring for your children, you are the mother. Yeah, I think the, the Other Mother title is just to differentiate, not, not for my family, but, it, but when talking about it with other people who are like, so who are you and what do you do? Again, it feels like going back to that idea that language hasn't quite caught up to facilitate that. The role that you have requires an explanation. You know, I'm, I'm still floundering now trying to explain who, the, who, who I am. I'm just a parent. You know, my sons have a mum and they have an, another mum. They have two mums. They don't have any confusion. Chloe's mummy and I'm mama. So that's it. If someone refers to me as mummy, they're like, I remember they've got scooters. They always stop before the road. Not at the road, but like quite a bit before. But I, I'll let them tear down the hill because I know that they're going to stop. But they're little and they're small for their age and it, it, it freaks people out. And I remember a woman just stood in front of them and stopped them so that they had to skid and stop. And, uh, and I was like, oh, God, here we go. And I said, you know what, they're fine. They, they know how to stop and they we come down. We live up there and they come down here all the time. They're absolutely right. She was like, I wasn't sure. And she went, well, mummy's here now. And my kids went, she's not our mummy. And... <laughs> And she just looked at me and I went, yeah, isn't that? I didn't even bother. I was like, no. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
you had such an incredible, vital, practical role when, especially at the beginning. But yet, you tell this story about this, <laughs> this advice that someone had given you, again, pushing that biological agenda of, um, you know, you can breastfeed if you pump for um. six to eight weeks before the baby comes. I've never heard anything like this before. It's absolutely true. You might need to take some hormones as well. I think there might be something you have to take, but basically you can trick your body into believing that it needs to produce milk. I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. I, do, I mean, like, literally, she can... We'll put it in a bottle. I mean, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I think for breastfeeding, the other thing that they don't tell you is that... As, as I'm sure for some women it's easier than for others, but, but I know of people that it was just too painful to breastfeed. It was just too painful. But they, and it wasn't that they were being lightweights. It's just for some women it is incredibly painful to breastfeed. We went to a breastfeeding clinic because, oh, yeah, because Luca wasn't feeding properly. The little one wasn't feeding properly. And uh, so we were really worried about him. Um, and, it, and it turned out it was nothing to do with the way Chloe was breastfeeding him. It was just to do with the fact that he had an intolerance to the milk protein, which we didn't realise. But we were at a breastfeeding clinic and there was a young woman there who was absolutely distraught, who had terrible, like, mastitis in both of her nipples, like, you know, pus. She had these nipple guards on her postulating breasts, desperately trying to breastfeed a baby in absolute an agony. This poor, bleeding, postulated woman, you know, I just thought... The pressure women feel. The pressure to breastfeed, it just made me angry. I was like, I remember looking, I just don't think... They were comforting her, like, you can do it. And I was like, do you know what? You don't have to fucking do it. I've had, you know, I, I understand that you know, there's lots of positives to having breast milk, but I've had you know, patients coming and they, they're just, just crying, I'm so sorry I can't breastfeed. I'm going, you don't have to apologise to me. I mean, they, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry that you want to do it and you can't do it. So should we just move to bottle milk for a while and actually the baby will still grow and be healthy and be happy and, and loved and all those things. And as you say, you can heal. Even my friend, no, I don't have children, but even my friends say apologising to me, saying, I know I'm starting to introduce formula. I'm sorry, I know I shouldn't. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't need to apologise to me yeah. what you're doing. It's that um, judgment just Yeah, but down. also having to justify yourself with other women yes that's it isn't it's it? like women are meant to justify themselves in front of other women all the time about everything it's not and 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 there's no bigger competition than being a mother i don't give a monkey's bollock what you do i you know just do the best that you can that's all we're doing and you know what just because you are religiously breastfeeding your child you might fall down in another way as a parent we're all imperfect and we're all getting it wrong and we're all getting it right and we're all doing it differently there is quite a lot of one-upmanship and competitive you say competitiveness I mean, i think you mentioned also the birth in, in yeah, and doctors quite liking people to d deliver um, in hospitals. And that's partly because we want a healthy mum and we want a healthy baby. And I appreciate that, yes, there's the potential an over-medicalisation of birth and there's perhaps too many C-sections, etc. But also, you know, if a woman wants to have a C-section because that's a way that she would like to deliver, am I the person to tell her no when actually for some people that's a viable option? You know, I... But there also seems to be quite a lot of shame surrounding C-sections as well. But certainly, again, my friend who was saying, I want you to have the Earth Mother experience. There is no Earth Mother experience. I think it's when the choice is taken away. She felt that it wasn't a choice that the baby hadn't moved for a little bit and they, so she was taken straight into hospital and then, yeah, put on a lot of very strong drugs and then given a C-section. But the last thing you want is a dead baby. Yeah, you don't want to deliver a stillborn 
Yeah, it, I, I think there's there's a balance, isn't there, between a, a woman's agency in terms of how she wants her birth to go and how she wants the baby delivered, and also a doctor just wanting to have a healthy mum and a healthy baby. The vast majority of people I know that have given birth have had some form of intervention, some form of forceps or something being sucked out. Or during the during the pregnancy, I was very much siding with the whole idea of this earth mother thing. Yeah, and then as soon as we got to the point where Chloe might have to give birth, I was totally everything the doctor said. I went, yeah, you, yeah, you, whatever you say. Because I'm like, I just want you to be alive. I want the babies to be alive. And I don't give a shit about anything else. And, and I, you know, if it's the most medicalized procedure in the world where we all come out of this okay, I'm a-okay with that. Um, because it's terrifying. And it's just a really weird balance. And, I, and I, so I could kind of weirdly empathize with that over-medicalization of, yes. of the whole procedure more once we were in it. Just being the parent, you know, the dad, I mean, the, I'm in the dad role, made me a lot more empathetic to that feeling of, you know, when you see guys sort of pacing and not... It's, you know, complicated birth. Obviously, it's horrific for the woman going through it because it's her life that's in danger. But to be that useless and see the person you love the most in that is, you know... I don't know what it's like from a doctor's perspective. I know we, we you know, we, we doctors probably over-medicalise, well, that's partly our natures, um, and we try and intervene too often, but that's partly because we are worried a lot of the time. I find my job is, certainly when I was working in hospital, was periods of significant administrative boredom interspersed by moments of horror. Oh, God. And fear. So like you, acting. <laughs> you know, I, I, I the stakes dreams. aren't quite as high as they are in acting yeah, sure. let's be honest and, and often the stakes weren't necessarily high about with what I was doing but I do remember you know waking up and, and ringing you know ringing the switch but you know three in the morning I'd be on call ring switch going did I miss a cardiac arrest have I been bleeped in the middle of the night thinking that I might have slept through something um, I remember running down corridors and you know you get something called which is called on call arse which is where you've been wearing polyester for about 24 hours and you're just very sweaty and your bum's just not feeling great and you're just running down a corridor just under neon lights trying to get um, to this cardiac arrest and it's 10 minutes because it's such a big hospital Brighton Hospital for example it's it's very big so trying to get from one side to the other takes a long time and you're running up there. I'm not a fit person <laughs> so so there's this fat kid you know running down corridors um, and just terrified that when you get there that you will hopefully not be the first person to arrive you know particularly when you're a junior when you're very junior you know you don't actually want to be the first one because you're not sure what you're going to do hopefully you'll remember all of your training but what if you panic I, I cannot even imagine the, the, the pressure doctors are under. I'm not trying to make, make, make people, someone feel sorry for us. I do remember being a doctor is a real privilege in so many ways. And being a GP is a real privilege because I get the best side of it. I get the patient contact, I get the continuity. I get to see your child grow up. I get to look after your kid. I get to look after you when you're upset. And I get to see you again when you're saying thanks occasionally. But hospital medicine, I found intolerably up and down. I found the tedium immeasurably exhausting and I found the moments of, of, of high pressure I didn't get the Viagra effect like some doctors get where they get hard on with the excitement of what? it all some the people they, they love resus they love you know, oh. so they get you know the, the adrenaline gives them a high and they love dealing with that high pressure stuff whereas I just want I, I want people to get better you know 
And so that sort of stuff is, is, is not I love for that. me. I'm not in it for the erections. As a sexual function doctor, I am kind of in it for the well, erections. Sure, sure, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I walk past the room, like, I know two of these guys have definitely got a hard-on. That's what I'm saying. But that, that's just what one of the nurses said to me. He said, all of those people in there, they've just got hard-ons for it. And I, that really stuck with me. You talked a little bit in the book about how you were concerned, and I'm sure everyone feels this actually, but concerned that how your um, intimacy levels would work with the babies. Would they love you enough or how would you feel about them and then obviously that dissolves very quickly when you get into survival mode anyway and yeah actually I think before the babies were born I, I projected a lot of um, neurosis onto them you know like you forget that they're babies they don't think anything I'm like well I bet they think this and what if they think that they're like well guess what they've got no cognition so they're not thinking anything and once they're born you go oh they're just blobs okay fine <laughs> But before they like you, you think, oh, they're kind of going to think this and they're going to be like, who are you? You're not even my dad. Where's my dad? <laughs> they don't care. They literally don't know. They don't care. And, and it does take a bit of time, I think, for babies because their connection with Chloe was also about survival as well as about the smell of her being familiar. That whole thing where they are born and I, I totally believe that if Chloe had put them on their belly, they would have crawled up to the boobs. Like they just knew exactly what to do. It was so weird that two little things that were like seconds old or minutes old knew to go to her breast. It was just incredible. That was amazing. It was like, what? I wanted to ask about the intimacy that you obviously felt um, for the kids, but did that get in the way of your relationship? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you have to reconcile that with each other and with... It's different with twins. It might be different if you have one baby, but you can manage it a bit better because one of you will always have your hands free. So you can... It's a bit different, but because both of us always either had both of them or one of them. Like, if I had my hands free, I was doing something. I was doing the washing, I was doing the cooking. I had to go and do the shopping or something. I wasn't, you know, I was always doing something. Uh, and Chloe then would have two children. And also, and I think this is very common, is that if you are the dad or the other parent, like I am, you see somebody that has given all of their attention to you, suddenly they're not giving that attention to you anymore because they can't. And also they don't want to because they, they are now in love with this blog, maybe a little bit before you are. Like that feeling that you had when you fell, fell in love with your partner, they're having that with their baby. They're like, I love you so much. Oh my God, this love is so intense. I mean, and I'm saying that, let's not forget, obviously lots of women have postnatal depression and that's completely different. And obviously that can interrupt that period. But at some point you are going to fall in love with your child, hopefully. And whenever that happens, that's going to be the period that you are not going to be necessarily giving your partner the same amount of attention. You're not going to be giving all of yourselves. And I think sometimes, and I have seen this, where partners, whether they be male or female, resent that. And I kind of was expecting it. So I had to check myself. You can't resent two babies. And you can't resent your partner being in love and connecting with her children. And everything was done as a family. We were always a family. It was never like, these are my babies. It was always this, our babies, this is our family. So that was enough for me. And also you're exhausted. So that kind of plays on your libido. If you're getting an average of two and a half hours sleep a night, you don't want to have sex. You want to go to sleep. But can you also bond over the love of the babies together? Yeah, of course you can. And you can bond over the fact that your partner's a brilliant 
parent. So in my case, watching Chloe double breastfeed. Wow. I mean, that's like, you're like, you're a hero. I just wanted to ask what pleasures you've gained from your kids. What joy do you get from them? Oh, loads. They're so positive. Obviously, because they're children. There's no cynicism at all, like nothing. But cynicism does not exist for children, which is absolutely, because I am the most cynical old hag, the joy they take in, in the everyday. Everything is new. So you can constantly make, either make them laugh, surprise them, amaze them, astound them. I mean, every day you can completely blow their brains. And that is so exciting. You're like, oh, my God. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. <laughs> you know, just, you know, like, woo, you know, like anything, like yeah. just like a magic trick or anything. They're just, they, and also they think you're a god. So you are their entire world. So everything you do is amazing. And they will let you know that they think you're amazing in different ways. And also they want your attention all of the time, every moment of every day. And so they completely ground you and they force you to live in the present. And, and all of that is just in a time where we're addicted to our phones, when we're addicted to likes and getting our kicks off like some cortisol click. Yeah, oh, I've got dopamine, tw tw yeah, dopamine, whatever it is. I've got 120 retweets mm. or something. I mean, I'm lying, 12. Um, <laughs> but your children, they get rid of all of that and they force you to be just with them and their excitement and their engagement. It's just really refreshing. And also they redefine you. So however you did define yourself as a person, like for me, I am a stand-up comedian. Then that became like, oh, I've, I'm a parent first and that's my job. So that doesn't define me anymore. And that for me was the best thing that my children have given me is a chance to remember that I am more than that. And then you can take, and then you find that you end up taking pleasure in things that you'd forgotten that you enjoyed. You know, I'd, lots of things I'd stopped doing. I'd, I'd stopped really enjoying reading. I'd stopped really enjoying just doing sport or enjoying being out in the nature. I mean, being out in nature with my children is a real, I'd love it. I have a lot less sleep. I have a lot less freedom. I have, there's nothing that we do that requires any kind of impulse at all because there's, you know, I can't, we have to plan everything. Um, I have no social life. And yet all of those things uh, mean that I, uh, I'm still happier. It's, oh, I mean, happy is content, I, I suppose. Happy is a spike, isn't it? Of course, I have moments of happiness, but generally just a feeling of contentment with my life that did not exist before. And I would do anything to preserve that, you know, to my family and my unit and, and keep that safe. You can get your copy of The Other Mother, published by Square Peg at all good bookstores. Her latest show, Underprivileged, will be touring the UK in 2020. It explores the meaning of privilege and what it's like as a lesbian to raise two young boys whilst putting two fingers up at the patriarchy. Dates and tickets are available through her website at jenbrister.co.uk. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and, of course, pleasure. <laughs>
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 